Road. We're your hosts, Ricky and Alyssa. We're here to share the success stories of people who took the opportunity to join the trades and how these opportunities can be achieved by anyone looking for success. Our work may be seasonal, but our stories don't have to be. Become your own success story. Charles Smith and Papashko Minitikong Indunjig Indunjig Mirade Kea Kapini Nitawigi Nitawigian Kayabigo in Daima Papashko Minitikong Jigi Nishinabe Kwezi Bivisheng Minogae in Dayawag Nit Niwen Abinujiag Akina Akina in the Benujiag Udayana Wan Inu Dinishanabu in a Kazuanan Mui Pitain Dagwak Minoagae Miu Gapig Kanaman Gape Gikinu Maui Wadding Ingu Nichari Amag Jeji Jeji Kugoja Magua Ingu uh, I'll translate that. I wanted to uh, introduce myself in Ojibwe first, kind of get my bearings. Uh, I my Ojibwe name is Nana Ogijik, but people know me as Charles Smith in English. But at work in the Ojibwe speaking communities, everybody knows my Ojibwe name, Nano. They always go by Nano. In my phones, when I am uh, in my phone, Facebook. Wherever I'll uh, put everybody's Ojibwe names in my phone. Just uh, it's a, just a good practice for me to always know somebody's Ojibwe name. Like Joel, he's under Majimago Ninjins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Ojibwe, that uh, it's a crude Oj- nickname in Ojibwe, but it's kind of funny <laughs> for those who. St- who speak Ojibwe out there or who understand Ojibwe. If you know, they might you know. get a chuckle out of that one. But I'm not going to translate for that name. Joel can translate that name if he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, in my phone, Joel's under Zunge Goneash. His contact, but on Facebook, he's under Majimago Ninjins. Um, but almost everybody's under their, their Ojibwe names in my, my phone. Uh, just a good practice just so that I always know. And then sometimes I forget people's English names. Sometimes it's really hard to recall that. And then in Ojibwe, I was saying uh, where I'm from, because that's where that's where all my knowledge comes from. Anything that I, that I might know, 
Um, that's where it comes from, Papashkomanitig, the place of the bald island. Really proud of that place, really proud of where I come from. Always rep it. I'm never afraid to say that I'm from Papashkomanitig, the place of the bald island, Fond du Lac. Wherever I go, I tell people, this is where I'm from. This is, those are my people. Those are, um, those are where I have um, built connections in the community, worked in the community, and really strive to belong there and represent that place the be- to the best of my capabilities. Then I said in Ojibwe that I have four children, and the four, I'm not sure if the fourth one has been named yet, but uh, my my three kids, my oldest three kids, they all have Ojibwe names, and that's really important to us as Ojibwe people to make sure that our kids are named. I didn't get named until I was 18. Then I went into a sweat lodge, and I got another name. That's where I got the name Nainogizik from when I went in the sweat. The old man gave me that Ojibwe name and it kind of changed my life. Really helped. But the elders always say that, that, you know, when we get an Ojibwe name, and I was saying this in Ojibwe, that that's, that's what carries us forward. That's what takes good care of us as, as the Anishinaabe people. It will take good care of us. And that's where we get everything that we need in our lives to um, to keep moving. I kind of want to know how did you learn Ojibwe? That's a that's a good that's a good question. Um, well, it all started when I was six. Nay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but all seriousness, uh, we. I started learning, taking Ojibwe really seriously when I went to the Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College. Dan Jones, he was Gagige Benesibun. He was my first instructor in Ojibwe. And that's where I first heard Dan, when I first heard somebody say, because Dan was the first one that said it, you can't really learn Ojibwe in a classroom. He can give you a lot of the basics, but you can't learn Ojibwe in the classroom. And I didn't believe him. I didn't even know what I didn't even know what he was saying to me at that time. I was only eighteen years old when I was when I was first taking Ojibwe. And so I started getting some of the basics down. I started using Ojibwe almost every single day. I started really studying it, getting some of the vocabulary down, getting some of the paradigms down. And then I went. I graduated from Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College, and I went to school in the cities, University of Minnesota Twin Cities. That's the U. So when people would say I go to the University of Minnesota, we'd always um, ask them, "So you're down in the Twin Cities?" And they'd say, "No, UMD or U of M Morris." And um, we're like, "No, that's not the U. <laughs> the U is in the Twin Cities." So we'd always correct them. We're uh, as a gopher, we're really proud of the U. I mean, it's just an awesome institution, but it's still an institution. So when I got to the U of M, I started taking Ojibwe courses. I had I, I really wanted to learn from 
um, the two linguists that were down there. So I had to take another. I had to take. They didn't accept all my transferring credits from the tribal college. And so I had to take second year Ojibwe, and I didn't want to take second year Ojibwe. And, and if Dennis Jones hear the, hears this, Paybama Benes, I didn't really want to take his class because that's uh, Dan's twin brother. So I figured it would be the same thing. It was kind of the same thing. But it, it was cool meeting and making connections with the students that were there, making connections with Dennis Jones. And then when I got to, and then I got to the courses that I wanted to take, Ojibwe 3, Ojibwe 4, that was taught by Brendan Fairbanks, Awanigawa. Brendan Kishkitan, he recently changed his name. That was his grandmother's name in Oklahoma. So he took that, changed his name to uh, Kishkitan, his, his grandmother's name, if I recall that story correctly. He just told me. Text, I asked him, I said, why do you change your name? He explained it. I'm pretty sure that's his grandmother's name. But Awanigaba, he started teaching. He was, what he was, his main focus at the time, and it probably still is, is teaching conversational Ojibwe. And that's kind of where I really got uh, really decent at conversational Ojibwe because he always focused on being conversational and having conversations in Ojibwe and wanted to um, make sure that we share stories, discourse, teaching discourse, teaching how to tell stories, teaching um, teaching just the basics of having a conversation with somebody in Ojibwe. So, and then I started taking classes with John Nichols, the guy that wrote the dictionary. And Bidonikwa, he's a cool guy. Uh... Bidonaquet is a unique individual. He is different. And but super knowledgeable in the Ojibwe language. Spent his entire life dedicated to Ojibwe. And he explained how he got into learning Ojibwe. When he got to his linguistic course um, to take, to know what he was going to study. It was either Dakota or Ojibwe. And it was just like a flip of a coin. And if it went the other way, I don't think we would have as much resources as we do in Ojibwe or documenting Ojibwe the way it's been documented in the last 30, 40 years without John Nichols. So Ojibwe people, you know, we owe... We don't owe anything to John as Ojibwe people, but we should be, um, you know, express some gratitude for what he's done. Yeah. I don't know about grateful either, but express some gratitude of having that guy just by chance being able to say, I'm going to study Ojibwe, meet the elders in Mille Lacs, and then the rest is history. We're here. We're documenting Ojibwe on a daily basis all over Ojibwe country now and documenting Ojibwe speaking elders and teaching the Ojibwe language in the, you know, the double vowel, um, the double vowel writing system, which is the, the heck do they call it? 
the standardized rating system. So the double vowel writing system, it, you know, it just, it's changed how we document Ojibwe. It's made it a standardized writing system where it's consistent through, throughout everything that we do as Ojibwe people, everything that we document, everything that we write down. It's a very consistent writing system, and that's to be on that page now. You know, the sky's the limit from here on what we can document. But what's funny... <coughs> After going to the U of M for two years, I'm in my very last class, Anishinaabe Moen Structure. It was a really unique class. It was awesome. A book about this big, a binder of pages, I don't know, 300, 400 pages, maybe less, maybe 150, but in a binder, it's like this much. There's that many pages in there. And John, right when we were getting done with the class, maybe the last week or second to the last week in class, he said, I just want everybody to know this. You can't learn Ojibwe in a classroom. And it finally made sense. What Dan had said to me when I was 18, I was, only, I was 22 at the time, you can't, you can't learn Ojibwe in a classroom. It's impossible. And I was like, Paid all this money. <laughs> Paid all this money up to this point, about to graduate, and this guy tells me I can't learn Ojibwe in a classroom. It's impossible. He said, you have to go to the elders to learn how to speak Ojibwe. You have to go work with the elders. You have to go listen to them. You have to go have conversations with them. You have to learn how to tell your stories in Ojibwe. You have to learn how to tell stories to elders in Ojibwe. You have to hear their stories. And that was like an aha moment for me. And then I started working with elders. A Mick, a Mick Ogabwebun, Larry Smallwood. He was like the first elder that, not the first elder, he was the second elder. The first elder that really took me, uh, really taught me some of the basics of working with Ojibwe people. The basics and maybe the most important part was Neeb, David Abed, over in East Lake. We were doing the canoe project right when I got done with the, right when I moved back to Fond du Lac from the cities. And nobody, and what was weird is I moved away, I moved away for two years and everybody treated me like a stranger. Everybody treated me differently. Everybody wondered why I left and came back. And I, I kind of didn't feel welcomed in my own community, even though I grew up there. And then I didn't really know anybody. And like, I did, I grew up. I left, I left in, uh, I left Fond du Lac when I was new, new to sobriety. I didn't know the people that I hung around in Fond du Lac, you know, probably weren't some of the healthiest people, but some of them were really healthy you know, the way they were living. But then when I came back, it was it was a struggle to uh, be back into the community. So when I was working with Neeb, it kind of, it, I had another aha moment. He had asked me, I think this was the summer before I actually moved back 
moved back from the U of M, moved back from the Twin Cities. He had asked me in Ojibwe, which means, what are you doing? And so I told him, I said, I'm a student at the U of M. I work um, learning how to, I don't know what I'm going to graduate from the U of M with, but I'm learning Ojibwe. I'm taking courses with the Wanigabo. I'm taking courses with John Nichols. I'm, and then I'm taking these other courses. And he walks away from me. What? He walked away from me, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't. I looked at my brother Bill, and I was like, "Man, what did I say?" He's like, "I don't know. I never seen that. I never seen him walk away from anybody. I never seen anybody do. You know, you were just answering his question." And he walked away from me, and I, I went home. I was overthinking everything. I was trying to think about what the hell did I? How did I piss him off? Like, what did I say? And the next morning. Instead of being afraid to ask him, you know, I put my ego aside, dropped it to the floor, and I said, hey, what did I say wrong? He said, I asked you what you were doing here today. I didn't ask you what you were, I didn't ask you anything about your schooling. I didn't ask you if you were a university student. I didn't want to know any of that. I wanted to know what you were doing here. And I was like, Dang. And then it kind of clicked, you know, Ojibwe people, we've been, our knowledge has been written down so many different times throughout history, you know, with the treaties, with William Warren, with uh, Francis Densmore. You know, the researchers will go into Ojibwe-speaking communities or into communities that have retained their knowledge and their culture and will ask them questions and document and write their books and get published and get all the credit for their for their for what they've done to document the Ojibwe language and mm-hmm. Ojibwe culture. So when he when I was telling him I'm at the U of M, all he could think about was John Nichols, the guy who wrote the dictionary. Wanigabo, who's writing his own books, and Brenda Child, who's writing, who's researching. She's a really good professor from the U of M that that uh, documents and researches. She's from Red Lake. She documents and research researches um, different things. She just she just did a jingle dress exhibition, and she wrote the, a book about the jingle dress two years ago, three years ago, to mark the the centennial uh, celebration of having the jingle dress in Ojibwe communities. And I don't know if it was really the 100 years or not. But so she was, so I kind of understood that once he said that. He, he explained the entire history of us being taken advantage of. And now it's, you know that paradigm that, however that's came to be, that's that's shifted a lot. Where it's a lot of Ojibwe people doing their research now. A lot of the Ojibwe people approaching the elders to get the cultural knowledge, to get the the Ojibwe language knowledge of how the Ojibwe language works, and then documenting it, writing writing it down. You know, coming up with theories or 
you know, a good solid proof of how things work in the Ojibwe language. And, you know, it's either the elders are a lot more nicer today than they were, especially when I was a student. You know, that was 13, 14 years ago now. The elders kind of accepted that, you know, what we have to do as Ojibwe people for our language to survive is documented. Because they've, you know, it's been 13 years. I've known all these guys. I've lost, a, we've lost a lot, a lot of elders that really have believed that the most important thing that we could do for Ojibwe people and for all, all our people and the Ojibwe language is documented so that we have it for the future. So, but there are some growing pains. For me, there's a lot of humility, a lot of, I don't know, I've shared, I've shared that experience with people. And the people ask me, just like you said before, before we started recording anything, you know, be nice about it. You know, sometimes (laughs) it wasn't nice for me. What I experienced, it wasn't nice for me. I got walked away from, I got chewed out by the elders, I got... You know, the elders were really stern with me when I first started learning Ojibwe language. Some of them won't, some of them wouldn't even open up. Some of them would stay silent. And, but it's always nice, especially when uh, the elders or speakers come from Canada and they're walking around in the mall in, in Duluth and they'll be speaking Ojibwe to each other or if they say something about me or if I'm going around somewhere and elders are talking Ojibwe, and they might be talking crap about me or somebody else. You're like, Anin, what did you say? That's I'll just ask them in Ojibwe, what did you say? And they'll be surprised. They'll be like, man, some, he knew what I said. <laughs> so, <clears throat> like today, the, it's it's there's so many good second language speakers that the elders have to watch what they say now because it's not, no longer a secret now to a lot of us if they're t- or they'll just talk crap and you know they know that they I know s- you know they know i know <laughs> but then i i don't know i don't share i don't try to it's always funny listening to them they might be talking crap but it's it's just whatever. It's not not in any mean sense, but they might be. This person really thinks they're full of themselves. You came to Mukazo. I've been called that uh, before, but others for sure have been called that, and the elders might really truly believe that. You came to Mukazo in Ojibwe means a know-it-all. They pretend to know everything, and you don't ever want to be called a Kikana Mukazo. Um, Nanama 
you know, thinking about how humble we have to be in as an as an Ojibwe person and as as you start learning more about the language and more about the culture. You know, we never just say that we it's hard for you can ask any elder, hey, what do you know? Or tell me what you know about this. It's probably a culturally inappropriate to ask questions like that to Ojibwe people because we're really humble in what we what we might understand about something because we might in in all reality we might only understand like this much about our culture about our language about er, about everything that we were given as Ojibwe people and in Ojibwe I was sharing there I said one time I went to work because I was thinking about it came to Mukazo, you know, being, being a know-it-all. One time I was going to work, and I used to work with an old man named Majigoneash. He's not that old. He's still pretty agile, and he goes around and does sugar bush, skiing, all types of different things. He's really fit and still does a whole ton of stuff for all going all over. He's still, he's only probably about 60 he still goes around and does everything. I was going to work one day, went into the cultural center, and I seen Maji sitting in his office, and he said, what do you know? And I was like, man, I was thinking, I was thinking <laughs> to myself. And it was at an awkward time in my life, and recently just ended a 10-year relationship, and trying to get back up on my feet. No, this was even before that. Even before all that, he had asked me that. And so I was thinking about it. Man, I don't really know shit. Except learning how to write all this, um, doing the, you know, what we do at work, documenting in Ojibwe. I need him because uh, I could write as much Ojibwe as I can, it might not be the same as how the elders say it. So I know how much I need it, how much I need him, and to do my in order to do my job. I know how much I need the elders. I know how much I need him to do it. Uh, I knew how much I needed the U of M to teach me how to do double vaults so it could be consistent and everything that they taught me about Ojibwe. I knew how much I need my parents show me and my grandparents and everybody from Fond du Lac to teach me how like man this is how you're an Ojibwe person you know we got sugar bush here we got we got racing we got all these things so all these things that I depend on to to know to have a good solid identity I needed all those other things so I'm like man I don't really know shit I got everything from everybody else so I said to him I said I don't know anything and he said, well, you're wise. 
And I had to really think about his question for a second. Hey, Awego Nenge Kainamon, what do you know? And, you know, the elders kind of stress that, that type of humility with Ojibwe people all the time, always asking, what do you actually know? What do you, what, and it's a kind of a test to see if you're going to be like, well, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I know how to do uh, whatever. And so always having humility in everything that we do as Ojibwe people, you know, that's really important. And that's kind of something that the elders always stress about and always work with us about. So, you know, I'm just happy. You know, I had that experience, that hard learning experience with Neeb. Like, what do you actually know? So I went to the U of M, asked him told him everything I was doing and he walks away from me and that kind of always put me in my place always drop ego to the floor the U of M doesn't make me a better person than anybody else the U of M might have taught me might have allowed me to learn a bunch of cool things but that still doesn't make me special doesn't make me anything more than anybody else having my own sobriety having as much sobriety as I have doesn't make me better than anybody else. Having been raised in a home where I have two parents there all my life doesn't make me better than anybody else. Having my own vehicle, having my own home now, having um, having all these connections where people can have, where, where my kids benefit from having those connections and having their own Ojibwe names doesn't make me better than anybody else. So always being rooted in humility wherever we go. So I was thinking about it on the way here. I'm like, man, what? I just don't want to put my foot in my mouth, foot in the mouth here sharing. But then at the same time, if I don't share, if I don't, um, if I watch, you know, another thing that they always say, on Guam is in, or no Ojibwe salutation especially a farewell one. Or they might check you with it on Guam is in. I met some Canadians this past weekend at the Ojibwe Language Symposium. I said, hey, how do you guys say see you later in Ojibwe? They're saying Bama P, and I'm like, well, how I'm talking to this person on texting and phone call too. And well, what should we say? So I'm from Minnesota. I speak my dialect. We say these things, or the way we say things down here. I know you guys say "bama p" up there. We say we like to say "gigawabamin," or we say and a lot of times we'll say "nagaj," which just means later. "Gigawabamin" means um, I'll, I'll be seeing. I'll see you. Literally, just means I'll see you. Bama P is not until later. That's what they like saying up there all the time. At work, we're in a habit of saying we'll say Gigawabamin because that's kind of like the the norm. But if I'm talking with the, if I say it, if I do an Ojibwe, if I say a farewell to our elders or any of my employees. I'll say on Guam is in, or I'll say, or I'll say way, way, Sana, but on Guam is in. This old man, 
again, Maji. He's not really that old. Let's just say Gijenabe. <laughs> Gijenabe, middle-aged man. I like to think of him as a middle-aged man more than an uh, old man because he's still really spry. But Maji, whenever we would leave the office, and I got this before he moved to the Wisconsin, and uh, I used to work with Maji up at Misabe Kong, the immersion school in Duluth, We'd always say on Guam is in every time we left. So every time we left the school, every time we parted ways, if it was at work or if it was up at Masaba Kong, we'd always say on Guam is in. And he told me one time, you know, his grandmother would say that every single time that he would go to school. And Maji's from Kagichuanong, Black Lacroix, one of Joel's relatives, one of my relatives too. So Maji's a relative of mine and one of Joel's close relatives up in Kugichuanung. Closely related to the Bojes up in Kugichuanung um, and uh, Net, Net, Lake? Net Lake. Net Lake, really close, separated by water, separated by the Canadian border. But they, there's a way to get to Kugichuanung from Net Lake by waterways. Lake Vermilion. Yeah. Yeah, Lake Vermilion. My grandpa used to do that. So he, we'd always say on Guam is in, which literally means think of everything you do or say. And so coming here today, I was thinking about that too. I'm like, man, I got a Kongaegu and a Kanazine. I don't know anything on Guam is in. Think of everything I do or say here. You know, don't, don't say anything that I, I can't back up. Don't say anything that I don't want somebody asking me about later on. Like, why did you say this? You don't really do that. Like, right. Well, you know, if you're going to say something and you live by something, you know, like, back that up. So I always think about that. I always think about what we, what I've been taught and what I actually go by every single day. On Guam is in. So good practice. And so I was talking to this person from Canada. <clears throat> And I said, on Guam is in. And she was like, man, why would you say be careful? Because that's the way she took it in her head, being a learning Ojibwe, speaking Ojibwe, what what she's been taught in Canada. I'm like, on Guam is in, that's how we say it, though. That's what we say. She's like, well, we don't say that around here. I said, well, you got to ask your elders if you guys actually say that, because you know what? I got that from somebody from Gugichuanung, Black LaCroix. That's what his grandmother would say all the time. And then she's like, oh, well, I'm going to have to check that out. And Weiwei Sana, another thing that we say all the time at work when we part, Weiwei Sana, the full phrase is Weiwei Sana Bimadazin. But for short, we'll say Weiwei Sana or Weiwei Some people will say Weiwei I don't say that. I just like saying Weiwei Sana. I got that from the elders in Mille Lacs. We like saying that all the uh, time. We like I'm from Mille Lacs too. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but a lot of my teachings, seriously, I owe a lot to the people in Mille Lacs. Those um Panjigabo, Jagawamikukwebun, Mikogabwebun, Larry Smallwood, Lee Staples, Obizani Gijik, uh, Neeb, David Abed, just ton, uh, Marge Anderson. Just so many elders from Mille Lacs. I owe so much 
from what they've taught me. So I, so I, I might say we like I'm part of them, uh, but part part of everything that I've been given as an Ojibwe person is from Malak. So, and especially the, the elders down there, my elders that are from Malak, they took me under their wing, and so I built a good relationship up with Neeb, and then I met a Mick, and a Mick took me under his wing. And he, Amik became one of my best friends. Seriously, one of my best friends. When uh, I still get, I still miss him. Yeah. Um, I still think about him. I, he's, he was like one of the first elders that would just text me randomly. Hey, what's up? <laughs> one of the only elders, you know, when we're all talking about him. He was one of the only elders that could talk, you know, at the time, you know, when people had flip phones. He was one of the only elders that could text somebody with one hand and he would text me once in a while and he called me up hey what's up I was was thinking every time he called me up we were going to be doing a funeral and he's like no I'm just calling to see what's up what are you doing what are you doing what's happening and to start building a good relationship with a Mick learning more about who he was and and he became a really important role in my life. Like, you know, like my first Ojibwe uncle, I guess. Almost like a father figure. Almost like a father figure. I mean, we were really tight. He was like a really super best friend. I'd text him out. I'd ask him questions. I'd ask, hey, I really want you to be at this event. Can you work this event for me? He's like, yeah, I'll come up there. So I could rely on him. Hey man, can you come up here? Do this, do this, do that. He'd always try to help out. And so all those times I didn't know, you know. At one point he would ask me to bail him out. Called me up one day. And I was his apprentice for two, three years at this point. He was teaching me how to do the Ojibwe funeral. I was in Las Vegas. And he calls me up and he said, Hey. Do you want to do a do you want to do a funeral? And I was like, man, I'm in Vegas right now. And I was like, well, I can check when we get back. I looked at my ticket. I'm arriving in Duluth at like four or five. The funeral starts at six or seven. Yeah, I can do. You know, I was doing the wakes for him all at this point. I did the entire wake. He didn't have to do the wakes anymore at this point because I was doing the tobacco talks. I was doing the the legend that we tell on during the wake, and I was doing another speech that we do on on the, during the wakes. He's like, I know you understand it. I know you know it. I was like, man, I don't know if I know it. He's like, I, I believe in you. Can I tell him that you'll do the funeral? And after pressuring me for about five minutes, I was like, all right, I'll do it. So I started thinking about what up. I started thinking about the funeral, and I was drawing blanks. And I was like, man, I shouldn't have said yes. I shouldn't have said <laughs> yes. And so I texted my friend. I said, hey, can you send me the, can you send me the funeral? That was written, you know, Lee Staples and Chato. Gonzalez, Ombishkibanes, and Obizanagizik. I said, "Hey, look, look in that book, and can you send me the, the pages of the funeral, just via pictures?" 
you know, via iPhone. And they said, yeah. So I got the funeral. And I looked at the, I didn't really look at that book ever. <clears throat> so to come to needing, you know, being grateful that Obazan and Chado, they rec- documented, wrote that funeral down. And I was looking at the funeral. I was like, well, Mick doesn't say this, cross this part out. He says it like this, cross this part out. I went through and and wrote down the way Mick did the funerals. And I cross out everything Mick doesn't say. I mean, uh, yeah. And then reinsert what Mick actually says. And that's kind of how I learned how to do the funeral is he put me on the spot. I adapted, I overcame, wrote down how Mick did it. And then after that, uh, listening to Mick every single time that he did the funeral, I knew what he was saying. And I knew where he was at. I knew knew everything, not everything. I knew what was going on, everything that was going on during the service. So I could get ready and start moving chairs around, start moving, um, start preparing the food, whatever. So I kind of knew where he was going throughout the service. And I started understanding the funeral a little bit better. So when we, um, so when, after I did that, I did the funeral. I got off, I got off uh, the airplane. I have uh, vertigo. Everything was moving still. I walk into the gym, and I delivered my uh, the wake, all the speeches for the wake, and the ground was. Sh- uh, I was. Everything was moving still. Felt like you're on a boat. Yeah. And it's, it wasn't the best experience ever. And I was like, man, <clears throat> get done. Still stressing about the funeral. Still reviewing everything that I wrote down the way I make, had done the funerals. Stayed up until like 2 or 3 in the morning. Got up at 8 and went and did the first funeral that I ever done. And then I got done. Oh, and then what had happened to me, which was another humbling experience. Mike Dahl was helping me. My brother Bill, he was helping me. And we had the usual ladies that would help a Mick. They were all there to support me. And I look up. It's like 10 o'clock, 9.45. I look up and I see Marlene Stately. Marlene Stately is a well-respected elder from all over Ojibwe country, especially in Minnesota and Wisconsin. She's from Leech Lake. She's passed away now. I look up, I'm like, man, why the hell is Marlene Stately here? She was like (laughs) four or five rows back, right on the end, right by the aisle. And Marlene's right there. I'm like, what do I do? I'm looking at, I'm asking everybody, I'm like, why the hell is Marlene here? Why did she come? They're like, I don't know, go ask her. I'm like, why do I have to go ask her? (laughs) Why can't one of you go ask her why she's here? Because there's no clear, like, connection, anything. Like, it was my family. Um, I was doing the funeral for my close cousin, Pam Diver. She had asked me to do a funeral for her husband, her late husband. I... And and once a Mick had said it was for Pam, I said, well, I can't say no to Pam, okay. That's kind of was what sealed that 
thing in there is that it was for Pam and I couldn't say no to her because I respect her so much. I, I love that old lady so much. Old lady. Okay. But I really do. I really do love Pam so much, mm-hmm. and I couldn't say no. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And so I went up to Marlene Stately. I got up. I got, you know, I I, I don't know. <clears throat> My friend Kathy, you know, you know, I'm trying to get her on the show. On, on her neck, she has a tattoo that says, do it with fear. And it's kind of something that I've, I've always done too. So if, because if you do something with fear, if you do something with, if you're not afraid or if you do it with fear, nobody can tell the difference. So I, I went up to Marlene knowing that full well that I'm scared. Like, why the hell? I'm like, hey, Ani, why are you, why are you here? <laughs> I just asked her flat out. I said, why are you here? She said, I seen your name on the obituary spiritual advisor, the one that's sending that person off. I wanted to see who was doing the funeral, and I wanted to know if you're going to do it right. I was like, man. Yikes. So I get done with the funeral, and I go sit with her. And she said, well, you got him home. And I was like, yes. (laughs) She said, I... You know, she didn't say, she didn't correct me or anything. She didn't say, um, you know, you should say, she, she should have said it this way. You could have said it this way. You forgot this. You forgot that. She said, you got him home. So after that, I was like, well, Marlene Stately said, you got him home. And I, I was really, you know, it kind of helped me out, kind of. I don't know, it gave me a lot of hope that I could do that work. And then I was more nervous the next time that I got asked to do a funeral. Because I wasn't asked to do the funeral. A Mick was. So Mick said, hey, we are gonna we got another funeral to do. He called me up a couple of weeks later. It was on Fond du Lac, and he asked me. I did the wake. And at the end of the week, he said, hey, you're going to send that person off tomorrow or I'll be here to listen to you. I was like, dang, man, why didn't you tell me this before? He <laughs> said, I said, you're here. Why Why can't you do it? He said, no, you already did one. So I want to see how <laughs> you do it. Next day, I was more nervous than having Marlene there because it was a mick. And I got up there, did the funeral, and I sat back down. And I was thinking, all right, just like how you do it. So I'm like, come on, tell me something like Marlene did. And he said, hey, make sure you say gimama, awesema. And I was like, man. All he did was correct me with one sentence. Make sure you say gimama, awesema. You pick up tobacco. You're telling that person to pick up tobacco. I was like, man. And he never said I did a good job. Never had said that. He never said. Uh, maybe during the wakes he'll say good job or something like that. But when when I would do the funerals with him, when I would send the p- person off, when I would, uh, if he forgot something, I would go tell him, "Hey, you forgot this." He would correct it on the spot. But he never tell me a good. He never told me I did a good job during the funeral. Why not? Everything else. 
I don't know. So for a long time, I was like, man, I don't know what he thought of me. And then when he passed away, people were texting me the day of, saying, have you talked to him, Mick? I said, no. So I texted him. Then text me back, and then I learned that he really did pass away. I was kind of heart. I was really heartbroken. It really hurt to lose him. And went to his service. One of my helpers, she had talked to his fiance or wife. I don't know if they were married or not. She said, "Tell Charlie that he really loved him, and that." Uh, he was he was done going up to Fond du Lac. He said that I had I had the funeral down that he wasn't going to come up and do services anymore, and that he had planned to tell me that. I don't know if she was I don't know if he she said he loved me or not, but just recently, like in October or November, my dad had shared something with me. This was he's been gone since two thousand and. 17, 2016. He's been gone for five years now. And my dad was talking to me, sharing what he's knows. Every time I need need something in my life, good advice, I'll go to my dad. Even if I don't take his advice, I just want his advice. I'm like, man, well, I can make my own decisions. I got to make my own decisions. I'm going to stand by my own decisions. I just like having good, solid advice that I can build upon or take certain pieces of it and say, hey, I'll take that piece and I'll do this. And he said, you know, Mick had called me one day and he said, I really love your son. He's a good t- he's a good student. He's a good friend of mine. I really love your son. And my dad tells me that. And I was like, it hit me. And then right when I get get in my truck, I start crying because he never told me that. Mick never told me that. I knew he did, but to hear that he called up my dad, he said, I really love your son. It didn't matter that he never told me good job during any of the ceremonies. But to hear him say that, you know, hear that message five years later, you know, then I really knew. What do you thought? Stay tuned next week to hear more of this episode.